We come to this last chapter and the last message in our study of the book of Job, and it's fitting to some degree that we, that we arrive here on the first Sunday of Advent, a time when we, when we uh, await for and wonder at the birth of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, whom Job knew lived and knew somehow one day he would see, even though he had no idea of when or how or who that would be. The book of Job is about perseverance, perseverance in, in suffering and in spiritual warfare, and perseverance in steadfast waiting for God to appear, to vindicate his, his righteousness and justice, as well as to display his mercy in redemption and restoration, all of which we've seen foreshadow the coming of the promised Messiah, the one whom the people of God hoped for and waited for until Christ arrived, and in whom we continue to hope and wait for his coming. And so as we focus on the end of the book of Job this morning, it also helps us focus our sights on the end to which Jesus himself has come and will come again. That is to reverse suffering, to restore the fortunes of all who put their hope in him. And, and by the way, I heard this week, it brought to my attention, that there's a movie coming out this weekend based on the book of Job. A, a, a sci-fi movie called The Shift. Thank you. I also heard that it's not true to the story. <laughs> so I'm not recommending that you go see it, and I'm certainly not recommending that you get your theology from movies, any kind of movie. It comes from God's Word. But if you do go see it, you will have the true story in the background behind what they're trying to convey. The book of Job ends with these words. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Forty-one chapters of unimaginable and unexplainable physical pain, emotional suffering, total loss, deep soul searching, the story of Job finally ends where it began. With Job living out his days as a man incredibly blessed by God in every sense of the word. And in one short epilogue to this long story, all of Job's suffering is reversed and his fortunes are restored as he gets his family back. He gets his wealth back. He gets his health back. All more than was before, so that we're seemingly left with that familiar fairy tale ending, as I said to the kids, that Job and his family lived happily ever after. In some ways, it almost seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? Some might say it plays into the faulty theology of Job's friends, who all along said at some point, if Job would repent of his sins, God would bless him abundantly again. A superficial or maybe a skeptical reading of this ending might lead some to believe that God is doing exactly what Satan said at the beginning, simply buying off Job's allegiance by giving him back even more than Satan had taken away. We might think that such an ending is wonderful for Job, but those kind of endings don't usually happen in real life, and we would often be right. But the main point of chapter 42 is not about God rewarding Job's righteousness or paying off Job's perseverance or trying to win back in some way Job's allegiance. 
The main point of chapter 42 is to show God's justice and his righteousness coming together perfectly with his mercy and compassion. Such that Job as well as his three friends are are profoundly changed in their understanding of God. And they are restored in their relationship with God and with one another. Thousands of years before Jesus came. God gives us a a living parable of the gospel with the vindication of his justice and the demonstration of his mercy coming together in the life of, of his servant Job. James in his letter, which we read, tells us as much. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. This is a well known story. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The purpose of God in the suffering and the steadfast patience of Job is to demonstrate his compassion and his mercy. To show his grace to those who who see him and believe him and, and cling to him even in the midst of unexplainable and turbulent storms that life can bring upon us. And so we see in the opening verses of the chapter that after God appears to Job out of the storm and reveals to Job his greatness as both creator and savior, Job is a changed man. He had heard a lot of theology, a lot of advice from his friends, some of it bad, most of it bad, some of it good. But it's not what he hears about God from others that changes Job. We can read, we can study, we can listen and talk all day about who God is and what God does and still not be changed in any kind of transformative way. What changed Job is when God appeared and he revealed himself to Job. And so Job says in verse 5 of chapter 42, I heard of you by the hearing of the ears, but now my eye sees you. You can, you can read about, hear stories about, maybe even see pictures and imagine in your mind the vastness of the Grand Canyon or the, or the incredible height of, of Mount Everest. But you cannot be captured. You cannot have your breath taken away. You cannot be, be changed by the, the, the immensity of their height and depth and, and, and breadth until you stand on the rim or you, you stand at the base and take it in for yourself. And until you are personally confronted with the glory and the majesty of God as he reveals himself in his word and as is seen in the person and the life of Jesus Christ through the gospel, you will not know him in a way that truly changes you, truly transforms you, that enables you to humbly submit to him and steadfastly trust in him and and faithfully cling to him And to his promises, no matter what your circumstances are. True transformation, true change takes place in Job's and in our own hearts when God reveals his greatness and his goodness to us. And he often does that through difficult times. He often does it when we are at our most vulnerable. When we recognize that that our only hope is a sovereign and just and gracious God. So how does God go about bringing about this reversal of Job's suffering? I think there there are kind of four elements that that come out here in this passage. And we might say these are are four essential elements of the gospel, of the good news. 
They are repentance, redemption, reconciliation, and restoration. First, we see Job's response of repentance. When Job's finally confronted by God and shown his greatness, he responds by bowing humbly in reverent submission and repentance before God. Job's, Job's repentance begs the question of whether he's now admitting, whether he's, he's confessing some particular sin like his, his friends were saying, or if, if his attitude and, and posture towards God has just changed as a result of this encounter with God. The Hebrew word translated here in, in verse 6 as repent can also mean comfort. And so some, some scholars have, have suggested that Job finally finds in being faced with God and hearing from God the comfort in the revelation and presence of God. And certainly Job admits that he has said some wrong things and made assumptions about God that are not necessarily right. But what we do see here is Job humbling himself before the Lord, which is, in a sense, what repentance is. It's humbling ourselves before God. It's, a, it's changing our course, submitting ourselves to God's will and his authority in all things. And so here we see Job humble himself before God's sovereignty. In verse 2, he says, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, God, you are in control and I'm not. <laughs> And then we see in verse 3, he humbles himself before God's wisdom. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. God, you know all things, and I do not. (laughs) And then he humbles himself before God's holiness. My eyes have been open. I see you, and therefore I I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God, you are holy, and I am not. And suddenly, Job is a changed man. He's broken. He's humble before God. Why? Not because because some great and awful sin of his had been revealed. It hadn't. But because a great and almighty God of his had revealed himself. Our lack of grief or shame or sorrow for sin is not due to the fact that, that we're not really that bad of a sinner. It's due to the fact that we don't really see and understand ourselves in relationship to who God is. When we encounter the greatness of God, when our eyes are of faith are open to see how amazingly holy and, and, and great and wise and sovereign and powerful God is, we become all too aware of our fallen nature. We see this reaction throughout Scripture of God's servants. Isaiah, when he saw God seated on his throne high and lifted up, he falls down and cries, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember Peter, when he was, he was confronted with, with Jesus' power, when he, he said, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. And after having fished all day and caught nothing, suddenly the nets were full. And, and Peter sees Jesus performing this miracle, and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He recognized he was standing in the presence of divine greatness. When Paul suddenly comes face to face with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's knocked to the ground. 
And his eyes were eventually opened to see that what he thought was his zeal for God was actually rebellion against God. And we see over and over in Jesus' life, when, when he comes, it's, it's those who recognize him. And recognize that, that in him there is the authority and the power as well as the righteousness that only, that only comes from God. And they call out to him for compassion and for mercy. And God not only reveals himself to Job, but he then turns to Job's friends and speaking to the eldest, Eliphaz. He says, my anger burns against you and, and by connection with the others as well. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, we know that everything Job had said about God was not necessarily right, particularly when he was confronted with God. But when it came to the argument of his friends, who had simply camped on this, this system of theology that they had, they had just, this simple system of saying that God punishes the wicked and he prospers the righteous, and therefore Job being punished must mean that he is wicked And God says, that's wrong. Job was right. It's not that simple. Sometimes righteous, the righteous do suffer. And sometimes God's justice is not always vindicated in this life. Job was confident. You remember, he was confident that even if he should die, his Redeemer lived. And one day he would stand before God face to face. And now he and his friends stand before God. And God humbles his three friends by pointing out, that the one they had accused of having been wrong was actually right. And so God reveals himself to Job's friends as well and calls them to repentance. And the first step of, of change in our hearts and God's transforming work in our lives is to, is to see him in all his glory. And as a result, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand and to turn from our sin and turn towards his mercy. Which is where God takes Job's three friends next. He not only points them in the direction of repentance, but he also points to their need for redemption, to be made right with God. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough he sends them to the very one they had accused and condemned. He says, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. And offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Here, here we see two realities about redemption from sin. First, it, it requires the shedding of blood. It requires a sacrifice. Remember, this was, this was long before God formally established his laws with Moses regarding the sacrifice and the priesthood. And yet, God says, your sin against me deserves punishment. Justice has to be served. A price must be paid. One thing Job's friends got right is that God does punish sin. He has to. He's perfectly just. And, and the wages of sin is the shedding of blood. It's death. And therefore, God says, go and, and bring this sacrifice a valuable sacrifice, seven bulls, seven rams, a complete sacrifice. When we stand in the presence of God, 
we not only see the reality that we are sinners, but we are confronted with the reality that God's justice, His holiness, His righteousness demands that our sin be punished. And God in His mercy here provides a way, He provides a substitute, He provides a sacrifice in our place. In this case, it was the blood of bulls and goats that as we would come, that would come to be seen in the, in the law of Moses were kind of like placeholders in the story of redemption until a perfect sacrifice could be offered. And so that's the first reality we see about redemption from sin. It requires a shedding of blood. But the second reality of redemption that we see at work here is that God in His mercy also provides a mediator. God does not say to the friends, just go and make a sacrifice somewhere, bow your heads, pray for forgiveness, and I will accept your prayers. No, He says, go to my servant Job. Go to the one you falsely accused. Go to the one that you angrily slandered. Go to the one whom you reviled and he will receive your sacrifice and pray for you. Remember back in chapter 1 that that Job had, had served in this priestly role in the life of his children and his family. And then remember in the midst of his suffering, he had a sensed his own need for, for someone, for an advocate, for a mediator to arbitrate between him and God. And now, here he finds himself again in that position with his own friends who had turned against him. To be a, to be a mediator, one has to be himself right with, the, with God, with the one you're mediating for or to. And here God has declared Job to be in the right. And he looks to his servant Job, the apple of his eye, the object of Satan's attacks, the one accused and betrayed by his own friends. And he says, I will accept his prayer on your behalf. Not to deal with you according to your folly. Not to give you what you deserve. In other words, if Job will plea on your behalf, I will hear and I will show mercy and compassion Job here enacts the law and the priestly role later established under Moses long before they would be codified into God's law. He, in effect, stands in the place of his three friends as a high priest before God. And having offered up a sacrifice, pleads God's mercy on their behalf. And brothers and sisters... The reality of our redemption is that a sacrifice has been made and a mediator has been provided and has stepped in to plea before God on our behalf and they are both one and the same. Our great high priest, Jesus Christ. God's own son came. He shed his blood on the cross so that we would not have to suffer the anger of God at our sin. He cries out on our behalf, Father, forgive them. And God answers his prayer and does not deal with us as we deserve. Change occurs in not only recognizing and turning from sin and repentance, but it's looking to to God's servant and God's son, Jesus Christ, for our redemption. Paul tells us in Romans, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And then he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus' sacrifice and his intercession change us. 
They transform us from from objects of God's anger to to objects of his affection. From from, From enemies against him to recipients of his love and grace and adopted sons and daughters. Christ redeemed us while we were still sinners through his death and resurrection. And so we see repentance and we see redemption through this this sacrifice and this mediation of Job. And then thirdly, we see reconciliation. In vindicating Job and redeeming his three friends, God, God reconciles them. First to himself, but then to one another. The proof of that reconciliation is seen, the proof of God's reconciliation is seen in their, their reconciliation with one another. Eldad, Bildad, and Zophar must look to Job for forgiveness. But equally important is the fact that Job's willingness, the fact of Job's willingness to pray and to forgive his enemies. How easy it would have been for Job to say, how probably all of us would have said, You want me to pray for you? (laughs) After the things you said about me, after the the way you falsely accused me, after the way you've maligned my name and heaped more pain and suffering on me through your insensitive comments and your harsh assumptions and your pious theology, yeah, right, maybe God will forgive you, but don't count on me. Have you ever felt like that? God is not finished here testing Job's heart. Remember, God has not restored his fortunes yet. He is still a suffering, sick man who for all he knows will find no relief in this life. And God is calling on Job to pray for those who have hurt him, to bless those who have persecuted him, not to revile but to do good to those who have reviled him. And why do you think God does that? Because the reality of the, of, the, of the transformation of Job's heart and of Job's life that has received vindication for his faith and, and reconciliation with God will be evidenced in his willing to be a conduit of that grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to his three friends. God accepts Job's prayer because Job is willing to pray. Jesus said in Matthew 6, If you forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you don't forgive sins, neither will God forgive you. Now, Jesus wasn't saying God's forgiveness is is conditioned on our forgiving others, that we have to turn around and forgive everybody else before God forgives us. No, what he's saying is the reality of God's forgiveness, the reality of, of his redemption in our lives and our reconciliation with him will be evidenced in how we relate to others around us and treat others. If you have truly understood God's grace and mercy and received his forgiveness, then you will have no problem praying and for, for and forgiving others their sins. It might be hard. You may not want to do it. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar went to Job and sought his intercession and Job prays for them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The prayers of a righteous man availeth much, God tells us. 
Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, our, our vision verse, if you will, for our church. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. There's that, that change, that radical transformation that comes through redemption. We are new creations. And then he says, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God is speaking through us. God reconciles us to himself, and then as a result, we're called to be ministers and and messengers of reconciliation to those around us. And brothers and sisters, the, 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 the way we lead others to Jesus is to live out our reconciled relationships with him, with one another as we love like Jesus loved in the body of Christ, and with those around us in the world. We do it by loving like him and praying for and pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation with others. And so... Think for a minute, who would God have you pray for and forgive and pursue reconciliation with right now? Who might you need to to seek out and ask for forgiveness and reconciliation right now? If you have been redeemed, if you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, to withhold forgiveness, to withhold reconciliation from another, is to say, God, I'm actually more just than you are. Which Job had to learn the hard way is not true. The mark of God's mercy shown to Job and to his friends is reflected in Job's mercy shown to his friends who had hurt him. And so, repentance and redemption and reconciliation lead to the final point, which is found in verse 10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Restoration. God blesses Job with twice what he had before. He restores broken relationships. His family and friends, who up to this point, you remember Job himself said, stayed far away from him, would look at him and mock him, would not draw near to him at all. Suddenly, they come and they sympathize and they comfort him. They come to his house. The first meal he celebrated with, with family and friends since all of this came upon him. And they, and they fellowship and bring him gifts of money and rings of gold, a sign of belonging in the family. God restores his fortune, blessing him with twice as many sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys. Doubly blessed, we would say. And he restores his family, giving him again seven sons and three daughters. And it's interesting, but the writer focuses here at the end on on Job's daughters. Noting not only their names recorded now in God's word for all of history. But the fact that Job gave them an inheritance. This would have been almost unheard of, particularly in a family that had seven sons in that day. 
But here we see perhaps an indication that Job had indeed learned a great deal from God's abundant and overflowing compassion and mercy such that he overflows in abundance to all of his children. And I think it's also a, a precursor for us again of the grace that Jesus Christ came to bestow on men and women Restoring the image of God in, in both male and female such that in Christ, not just men are adopted as sons. Men and women are adopted as sons and daughters, given all the inheritance and the rights of fellowship and the riches of God's kingdom. And then, of course, we see that God restores Job's health. As he lives on for another 140 years and he gets to play with his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and, and see up four generations come. It's also interesting just to note that it says that God doubled Job's blessing. We see that very distinctly in all the, the wealth that he had. But he gives him the same number of children. Perhaps it's because Job's hope was that he would see his First children again. And here he's, he will celebrate in heaven with twice as many as he started off with. So Job and his family lived happily ever after. Is that how the story really ends? Well, as I said to the children, not really because the last verse says, And Job died. No matter how great the blessings God bestows on us in this life, they come to an end. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. But our hope is not only in this life. Listen to 1 Peter 1.3, which we read earlier. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, new life to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God has redeemed us and he has reconciled us to himself. But what is that living hope? Peter goes on to say, to an inheritance that is imperishable, excuse me, imperishable, undefiled, and undefading, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded in this life, kept through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time when Jesus comes again. God in his redemptive work through Christ has given you and me who trust in him an inheritance. An inheritance that is far beyond anything we could ever imagine in this life. We are not just reconciled to God through Christ. We are restored as heirs of all that God is and has for us in Christ. Ephesians tells us we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places according to the riches of his grace which God has lavished on us. Jesus himself spoke of this, the rich rewards of following him in Mark 10, saying, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, but in the age to come, eternal life. Whatever we lose for the sake of Christ will be restored a hundredfold. Sometimes it comes in this life, often in ways we wouldn't expect. 
Part of that blessing of Jesus is being, being placed in the body of Christ, the church of God, where we are family. We are brothers and sisters, not only here in this body, but with, with believers around the world. We are called to, to love one another, to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to provide for one another. God blesses his people through his church. But for all of us, full restoration comes in heaven through Christ Jesus, where all suffering will be wiped away, where every need that you have will be met far beyond your imagination, where all fellowship that we have will be joyful and, and, and united, and where we will live and love together in abundant life forever and ever. Job was blessed to receive back what he had lost and then some. Not because he had earned it, but because of God's compassion and his mercy. And we can rest assured that heaven will overflow with blessings more than we can ever imagine. I appreciate the perspective of Christopher Ashe at the end of his commentary on Job, who says the book of Job is not so much about suffering, the suffering of Job, because it does not answer all our questions about suffering. Rather, it is primarily a book about God who deals with us in our suffering. It is about his sovereignty, about his character, about his justice, about his wisdom, and yes, even about his mercy and his love. It's about him being creator and controller of all things, including Satan and the evil effects of sin. It is about bowing down in worship before God and humbly admitting there, that there is much more that we do not know or understand. And yet God graciously calls us to hear and to heed the good news, to walk with him in repentance and faith, to receive redemption and reconciliation and ultimately restoration. But Job is also about a righteous man who suffers greatly, who perseveres faithfully, and who is ultimately vindicated and restored bountifully. Which means, Job is also about Jesus. The one greater than Job, who was known as God's servant, who was truly blameless and upright, who suffered greatly at the hand of God and was tested and tried by Satan to the deepest depths of suffering, even unto death. And friends, we may find it difficult to trust God because of suffering in our lives. But the reality is, we have to trust God because of suffering. The suffering of His own Son, Jesus Christ. His suffering gives meaning and purpose and hope to our own suffering. If you really want to plumb the mysteries of suffering, then we need to, we need to look past Job to the lonely twisted, bleeding figure on the cross. Nails pierced through his hands and his feet. Back lacerated with lashes untold. Brow bleeding from thorns pressed down in mockery. His mouth dry and thirsty, utterly forsaken by God. There is suffering undergone for you and for me. And if you want to see how such unbelievable suffering 
can be used by a sovereign, gracious God for infinite good, you need only to look to the empty tomb. And the risen Savior who stands now with his arms outstretched, offering the gift of eternal life and saying, turn to me, trust me, come to me, and you'll find rest for your souls. And so I'll end this series where I started it several months ago. There is not a person here this morning who will not at some point in life undergo suffering that will challenge your faith. Maybe you've already experienced that. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. Pain will seem unbearable. The questions will rise from the the depths of your soul. The answers given by the world and sometimes even by well-meaning Christians will not satisfy. And the book of Job reminds us that while the Lord's ways are not always our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, he is a sovereign God. And his ways are full of wisdom. And indeed, all that he does, including allowing suffering in our lives, he does because of his great love and his mercy, and his compassion. And he does it for the good, for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose through Christ Jesus. And so James, again, writing to believers undergoing suffering and persecution, says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, he says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Let us pray for and seek to have the steadfastness of Job, to humble ourselves before God and to look to our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and who has come and will come again to reverse suffering and to restore fortunes to those who are His by faith. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You for this book the story of this man and his family and his life of suffering. We thank you for the in-depth recording of his questions and the, the dialogue and the debate that so often we have ourselves in times of pain. But we thank you most of all that his story points to the greater story and to the greater one who endured suffering for us your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, as we celebrate his coming as a baby born in a manger, taking on the nature of a servant, humbly submitting himself to your will, even unto death on our behalf, Lord, let us remember that he is also our exalted king. And he is sovereign and ruling and reigning over all things for your glory and for our good. And so, Lord, give us steadfastness and patience and perseverance to wait and to look for and to long for his coming again and to know that even now he is present with us in all that we deal with in our lives. And Lord, if there are those here this morning whose hearts have not been transformed by meeting you face to face in the person of Jesus Christ, Lord, will you open their eyes to see your glory shining in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.